1: Uh, so first, yesterday for the, the, the Vax for BC campaign was announced. This is a push to make vaccinations more accessible with more clinics and more walk-in appointments. We heard, well, here's Pennybaum, vaccine czar, on the new Vax for BC campaign.
2: We really think it's a chance for the people who haven't yet been vaccinated to to get in there, to to make a choice to access a clinic, a pop up clinic, a, a drive through clinic, a mobile van, or, or a big mass vaccination center to walk in or make an appointment and get their shot over the coming weeks.
1: She was followed. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, also spoke at this press conference, obviously, uh, and spoke about, how, spoke about how this is largely a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Less than
3: 5% of the cases of COVID-19 that we're seeing right now are amongst people who are fully vaccinated. 96% are people who have received just one dose or 78% are among people who have not been vaccinated at all.
1: Dr. Henry was also asked about whether we'd be looking at more restrictions again.
3: It will be individual level, um, local things that will have to happen. So if uh, there's transmission in a workplace, that workplace will have to close temporarily in that place. Um, There may be uh, an outbreak in uh, a long-term care home um, that we know uh, the measures that we have to take to prevent transmission and to stop outbreaks in long-term care. And we see that every fall. But it's not going to be across the board where we're shutting everything down like before, even if we start to see a surge in more cases, particularly in unvaccinated people.
1: That was Dr. Bonnie Henry, who, by the way, was supposed to be here right now, but uh, she had some challenges with her schedule. And so we we're having her on tomorrow at nine o'clock. So look forward to hearing from uh, Dr. Henry. But one of the things is many of the communities that are lagging behind uh, in, are in the interior and in, in the northern health region. Uh, is this an accessibility problem or is there something else going on? I'm joined now by Shirley Bond. She's the interim leader of the BC Liberals, and she's an MLA up in Prince George, Vailmount. Hello, Ms. Bond. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So what is your reaction to this newest plan, this sort of strategic plan to localize um, the vaccinations?
2: Well, you know, there's been an incredible effort uh, put in place uh, by healthcare workers right across British Columbia and I think many people recognize that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of hard work done. We're getting to the place now where we want to get this across the line. So, obviously, uh, Vax for BC is going to be an important campaign. And I think it is about increasing uh, access, getting the opportunity for people to, uh, to find it easy to go get their vaccination. And there's certainly some creative thinking going into what that might look like. Uh, so, obviously, uh, I, I want to make sure that people in this part of the process, Have as much access as possible. It's important for all of us to get vaccinated, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, participating in the town hall today with Dr. Henry. Mm And Minister Dix.
1: You know, one of the numbers that came out and that we sort of are aware of is the the, the low rates up the north. Are, you're looking at, you know, 34% are not vaccinated. Um, your riding's up there, not all the way up there, but, you know, Vailmount, Prince George is, is fairly high up. Um, what is your thought on what's going on up there? Why are communities resistant? It's not an anti-vax movement. It is more just a resistancy. What, what, is, it? what is the problem? A hesitancy? What's going on up there?
2: Well, I think first of all, we also have to look at it from the the positive perspective that you know seventy percent of people uh, in this region of the province are are vaccinated, and that's an important mm-hmm. step. I think uh, Vax for BC is about making sure that people are aware of the uh, the accessibility, the enhanced accessibility. One of the things that's worked uh, very well in in my riding, for example. Um, is the fact that there have been community-specific uh, vaccination clinics. So, for example, it's a, an all-community approach. Vail Mountain McBride, for example, had specific uh, two-day periods, for example, where the entire community, it wasn't necessarily age-based, it was community-based. That is a really helpful uh, approach. So, you know, we're, we're going to look at making sure people know that there are going to be pop-up clinics. In fact, we're having a, a, the first outdoor concert in French George uh, sometime next week. There's going to be a vaccination uh, opportunity right beside the food trucks and all the other vendors. So, you know, it is about increasing access, reminding people about the importance of protecting one another. And, and again, I want to just recognize the incredible work that's been done with the Mass Clinic for example, here in Prince George, um, it's worked extraordinarily well. So, you know, this is the next push. The next two weeks is going to be an extreme concentration Mm -hmm. on reminding people about the importance of protecting yourself and protecting others.
1: We spoke yesterday to a guest about a report that was done to to focus on uh, your doctors, your general practitioners, and how they Uh, Can help this process, and and he talked a lot about this. Can't be hard sell. You can't hard sell Mm -hmm. uh, the vaccination program. You have to um, not something educated because you don't want to patronize people, but you need to communicate to them and give them the information. Is there something that's is there a disconnect uh, to the northern region in in the kind of impact that this virus has had? When we live in the city, you know, you're seeing the news all the time. You're kind of consumed by it. But if you live up north, where you live in maybe more remote communities, or you're not consuming news the way you might down here, is that is that one of the reasons? Is it a communications issue?
2: Well I, I certainly think we we face some some geographic challenges here. you know we mm-hmm. have a, a a very large uh, geographic area and a very dispersed population. So one of the critical factors is how do we make it easy for people and uh, you're right I, I don't think it is about a hard sell, but it is about talking about the the benefits. It's about recognizing that the number of people uh, who uh, who End up being diagnosed with COVID. Uh, that the people that are vaccinated, that number is very small. You know, Dr. Henry pointed that out yesterday. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of, of of talking about how that helps you as a, as a person uh, protect yourself, protect your family. And I think most people recognize, George, that you know um, they're feeling that sense of you know, thank goodness we're able to be back in community. That we need to be careful and thoughtful. But we want September to be you know uh, moving back to to. Uh, to a, a more normal mm-hmm. uh, September, and part of that is making sure that vaccination is a decision that people are prepared to make. So again, I I think working together across party lines on issues like this is important. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we don't ask hard questions about <laughs> well, the rollout yeah, and about rapid testing, but <laughs> that, you know, encouraging yeah. people. To, uh, to get vaccinated uh, and, and providing them with alternative ways to make it easy, I think is going to, ben- uh, you know, to, to derive some benefit, especially in the next couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, you mentioned about being a part of that town hall and, and, and committing to mm-hmm. being a part of this process with the party that's in power, the NDP, and, and with Dr. Bonnie Henry. But for, for you, how challenging has it been to be in opposition uh, and be critical during this pandemic? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think that's a great question. I mean, obviously, when there is a public health emergency, I don't think that's a partisan issue, and Mm -hmm. neither should it be. Having said that, there are important questions about the how, the why, the when, those kinds of things. That that is our responsibility to ask questions. You know, we've been, uh, we've been very aggressive asking about things like rapid testing and when they should be used. We were concerned that British Columbia seemed to lag when it came to putting an, uh, you know, an, auto, um, an online booking system in place. Uh, the use of pharmacists. So I think um, asking uh, tough questions about the rollout, about all of those things is important. But let's be clear, uh, we have been supportive of the efforts of Dr. Henry and her team, the way that work has been done in British Columbia. You just have to look across the country. We've done pretty well. Now we need to focus in this this extra push in these next couple of weeks uh, in the Vax for BC campaign, which will remind people about the benefits, try to make it easier for them to you know to just walk into that clinic and get get vaccinated so you know it it is a it is a balancing act Uh, we want to be supportive of of public health officials uh, follow the science make sure that people are are uh, you know have clarity but we also have questions and and it Mm -hmm. is trying to find that balance.
1: Where, Where do you think BC where the province has failed British Columbians in the last 18 months what where do you think that is?
2: Well, I think, for example, it, it's at times been lack of clarity. So, for example, you know, Premier Horgan shows up and announces that there's going to be travel restrictions, and then there's total chaos mm-hmm. that follows after it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there was that, that pattern of making the, the big announcement and then the lack of details for British Columbians. And we certainly heard a lot about that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it is about clarity. It is yeah. about uh, making sure British Columbians understand uh, what, the, what the plans are, how it's going to work. So, so, you know, we, we raised those issues. Uh, mm-hmm. People had trouble understanding why rapid testing wasn't used more widely in British Columbia, especially when we look at the tragic consequences in long-term care homes. That's going to be one of the legacies yeah. of COVID in our province. And we certainly have to look at the impacts of COVID on, on uh, elder, the elderly, the frail, the elderly, and particularly the long-term care model.
1: George Afflegan for uh, Mike Smith, you know, the data is in on BC's election last October that secured John Horgan a solid NDP majority government. Now that we've seen the numbers, we know it was one of the most expensive and least engaged elections in BC history. Did Horgan make the right call? Here he is in September.
0: We will be in a pandemic next spring and likely next fall and beyond. I looked at the challenges British Columbians were facing. Our worlds have been turned upside down. And I think the best course of action is to put the politics and the election behind us and focus on the needs of British Columbians. We have worked collaboratively, the Green Party and and my caucus, to do a whole bunch of very extraordinary things in a short period of time. But it's been three and a half years since British Columbians had their say. And I believe as we're going into the recovery phase and making sure that everyone's safe,
1: we should ask British Columbians what they think and where they want to go. That's that's John Horgan, our Premier. Uh, Prior to calling the round when he called the election, we had the election, uh, they won. Uh, Joining me now, continuing to join me now, Shirley Bond, the interim leader of the BC Liberals. Uh, You know, you you hear uh, Premier Horgan there and you see the report that came out yesterday. What jumps out at you right now?
2: Well, first of all, I think it confirms the concerns that many British Columbians had. Uh, The the reason, you know, the main reason the Premier didn't articulate in his (laughs) comments there was the fact he wanted a majority government Mm -hmm. and he uh, made a political calculation. You know, are people willing to to look at changing government in the middle of a global pandemic? And obviously the answer was no, they are not. Um, The report clearly points out that, first of all, this was an expensive decision by Mm -hmm. Premier Horgan Uh, when you look. At it from a fiscal perspective, uh, the cost of the uh, of the election uh, was twelve about twelve million dollars, twelve mm-hmm. million dollars more than if we had had the election at the scheduled time. Uh, so you know you stop and think about it from a fiscal perspective. But George, one of the bigger concerns that we had was the fact that when you go when you drop the writ and go to an election. Other things, um, you know, uh, uh, are delayed. So mm-hmm. uh, program decisions, getting money out the door. So let's right, be clear. In a very, um, in a very uh, collegial way, we approved five billion dollars of of spending to support businesses and individuals during COVID, mm-hmm. and that was in March. Um, so there was there was money to get out the door. There were programs to get then moving. I got, there was
1: a lag time there.
2: Exactly, huge lag so, time. Let's face it, the premier wanted a majority government. Yes, he got it, uh, and so and you know you I are. think British Columbians need to recognize it was costly and had one of the lowest turnouts in the last. Yeah, decade. that
1: was shocking. Down ten percent. One of the things in the report, though, it said that B- elections BC was always in in prep mode. They were ready at any given time because it was a minority government, so they were ready to go anytime. But it did say that in July they were sort of anticipating that the election would be called. Do you think that Elections BC was more prepared than the BC Liberals were for that election? <laughs>
2: Well, certainly, uh, you know, we we faced British Columbians, and they sent us a very strong message. Uh, We've done a look back, and a report was released publicly, which I think was an important thing to do, that said we have work to do, Um, and it clearly pointed out um, that, uh, you know, there were things we could have done better, but let's be clear, George, you know, the the Premier weighed the calculation very carefully, knew full well that British Columbians, uh, and look what happened, Uh, and the report confirms the concerns people had. there was some of the lowest engagement in this election in decades.
1: Mm-hmm. So when
2: you think about that, um, it it's was uh, the democracy. timing. Uh, the Premier knew yeah. what he was asking for. Uh, it was costly. People were not uh, engaged in it. Um, and, and so, you know, the outcome is the outcome. And now we're committed to being an effective, hardworking opposition.
1: <laughs> okay, real quick, last quick question. Yeah, i got about 10 seconds. You're, not, you're the interim leader. Uh, you seem to be settling into the job pretty well, but do you regret not going for the top job permanently?
2: I don't. It <laughs> okay. is. Uh, it's important to to bring, uh, you know, the the discussion about a new leader and rebuilding right. our party.
1: All right. Thanks, Ms. Bond. Thanks,
2: George. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Thanks.
1: George Affleck in for Mike Smith this week and hope you're having a great day. I want to remind you to feel free to call our buzz line throughout the show, 604 331 2899. 604 331 2899. You can also email me, george at cknw.com with your thoughts, george at cknw.com, or follow me on Twitter, george underscore, and that's a little line underneath, george underscore Affleck. So uh, parts of BC could see temperatures in the high 30s later this week, and according to Environment Canada, this will do nothing to help the wildfires, and the province is already under a state of emergency because of the wildfires. Even worse, according to experts, intense heat and drought conditions are causing wildfires here in BC to to generate their own weather systems. To explain more, we're joined by Michael Fromm, a meteorologist with the United States Naval Research Laboratory, Laboratory. Michael, how are you? I'm doing fine, George. Help me out here. This is... self. These firestorms, they sound scary. How does this work? Uh,
0: I think they are scary. They are uh, probably the the tip of the scale in terms of fire behavior as well as fire weather. And uh, in a nutshell, what happens when the fire gets particularly large and intense, Mm -hmm. flaming, it creates a, a hot bubble that creates its own convection column and everyone can kind of picture a cumulus cloud Mm -hmm. and everyone can picture a thunderstorm cumulonimbus cloud. Well, these fires generate their own cumulus clouds when that thermal bubble gets really uh, intense and then the weather feeds back on the fire, exacerbating the fire. The fire then creates an even larger thermal bubble and that may grow into a cumulonimbus convection tower all polluted by the smoke that's coming off of that fire so a bubble so within in a bubble basically lifetime of a storm you'll get this pulsating yeah. dynamic feedback between the weather and the fire creating the firestorm
1: wow so there's basically a bubble within a bubble so you're creating heat within the heat bubble that already exists is that that's right so <laughs> why, how do we stop that? Is there a way to make it not happen? Obviously, if not having fires is one way, but the, the, does this exasperate? Does this create bigger problems for us as far as managing this? It,
0: it does create problems, but um, the truth of the matter is that these are a natural phenomenon. They are not uh, new in this uh, warm climate that mm-hmm. we're having. They are routine every summer in Canada, or USA, Siberia, and Australia in their own summer.
1: The, the um, Are we facing that? Is that's what's happening here in B.C.? Is that what we're seeing that this year more than usual?
0: It's more than usual this year because it has, of course, as you reported, uh, been an extreme drought condition and in waves, particularly hot. Uh, and when those two conditions come together and then you add in a windy co- uh, uh, component, that hot, dry, windy is a formula for extreme fire and fire behavior so if the fire is already on the landscape and then that weather comes in Mm -hmm. then uh, a pyro cb and its effects are very predictable and i'm sure the local authorities the emergency authorities are all quite aware of that because when that storm does blow up uh, it becomes very unpredictable very chaotic and very hard to manage much less even observe
1: I think convection oven is the best example. You sort of said convection heat. Is that when I when I turn my oven on, really really hot, I open the door up and I get a, bl- a blast of wind. Is that basically what's happening?
0: There you go. That's a, that's a, a good uh, analogy to it all. But this hot bubble may exist over a fire front that might be ten or twenty kilometers long, and then that bubble is a continuous, continuously generated as long as that fire fire is intensifying, and so that brings in the winds uh that goes uh that replaces that air that bubbles up and those high winds exacerbate the fire spread it uh, chaotically, erratically mm-hmm. and uh it just goes like that for a series of hours
1: so it's the wind it's not creating the fire it's just making the fire worse because of the wind so I'm sure I got this straight
0: it, it it's it's hard to know which is the chicken and which is the egg <laughs> okay. usually the windy conditions start the the cycle when it's uh, ex- when it's moving that flame front mm-hmm. along And then, like I said, when that heat bubble gets large enough, then that actually dynamically mixes the air up and brings in even uh, stronger winds.
1: But you need something to ignite a fire. It doesn't ignite fires.
0: Absolutely. And many of these fires are naturally... um, um, ignited by lightning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, they could be um, you know, man-induced. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these windy conditions will do things like blow over power lines, let's say. And the sparks that come, uh-huh. over, uh, come from that could generate its own fire. And when the fire weather conditions are in place, that little spark goes to a big fire very fast.
1: What happened in Lytton, and I'm sure you're aware of it, we were at 49 degrees Celsius back in late June. It's ridiculously yes. hot here. Was this, and there was. there's still, uh, the jury's still out on what happened there specifically. There seemed to be, there was talk of, there was two fires, there was a ta- fire in the town, there was, you know, and, and there was this train track stuff, all these different things happening, it seems. Um, but do you think that this, this firestorm was what really pushed it in, in, in the case of Lytton, that, that was a perfect literal storm?
0: Uh, That I don't know. The specifics Mm -hmm. of Litton, I don't know. I do believe that uh, the the investigators uh, can do forensics on that, and they will probably find the source. Uh, I'm amazed to to even uh, contemplate that, but I have uh, followed other fire investigations, so I think we'll probably be able to track it down. As for the big pyro-cumulonimbus storms that occurred on that day, Mm -hmm. I believe they were slightly removed from Litton itself. But I don't have the details on what happened there in the town and the time that that was uh, consumed. But uh, it was certainly related to the larger picture of the two pyrocumulus storms that were kind of in the area that afternoon.
1: Can you predict them? We've got another heat wave coming. It's not going to be quite as bad, but can we predict when they're coming?
0: I think that we can predict them. I'm um, hesitant to be specific on a forecast because you've got a lot of fires, and we often wonder. Uh, which fire is going to blow up, and which is not, so it 's hard to be specific to the fire but if if your conditions this weekend are going to be hot, dry, and windy, then we are going to be on the alert, and we 're going to be watching in real time uh, for these things and If in fact they do um, these firestorms get started, we can capture them within five or ten minutes of when they start, and so we 're going to be on the alert to follow them and, uh, capture and hopefully, them how? Like... Uh, do our part to try to understand. High, how and when they occur, and what communities they might affect.
1: How are you capturing them? Through satellites or how, how
0: satellite do you, uh, yeah. radar? If, uh, if Southern BC is well covered by weather radar, mm-hmm. we can follow these these uh, fire plumes even before they generate the fi- the pyroconvective column, because you can see the ash and smoke in the radar, and so we can see it uh, connected to the fire, and then we watch it change every five to ten minutes, and when that the top of that radar column gets larger, then we start to suspect that it's turning into one of these storms. And at the same time, we follow the satellite data. They both come in at five, ten-minute intervals, mm-hmm. and uh, we, can, we can follow these storms if we've got our eyes on them uh, very actively.
1: So you encourage everybody here who follows these things to, to keep their eyes on that and, and then get out the warning when they're necessary. Are we seeing more of this uh, you know, phenomenon you know, across B.C. And, and globally? Is this happening more often?
0: This year, we've counted a particularly large number of uh, pyro-cumulonimbus storms. I'm uh, hesitant to say that we have a trend because we've had blips like this in years past um, or close to this. This is actually racking up to be maybe the top year in terms of the count, especially in Canada. And the season isn't over yet. We have another couple months to go. Um, so this year, I think we'll stand out. But I, over mm-hmm. the long term, and we've been following these storms now for Fifteen or 20 years, I don't see a notable trend that we can we can find in the data. Uh, hmm. but when the weather is warmer, drier, and windier, these things are to be expected and they might be expected in a higher number to the extent that we have these hot dry conditions and and the forest uh, out there
1: uh, to be burned. right so so climate change may not be specifically related to it, but it is related to it because of all the other components of it.
0: That's right. I'll give you a quick example. Sure. In 2010, in Western Russia, there were uh, hot, dry conditions that we've never seen before. They had a series of pyro CBs in that area. We've never seen them in that part of Russia before, haven't seen them since. But when the weather <laughs> conditions were right there, all they needed was a fire. And uh, then we had uh, these uh, storms blow up.
1: Michael, I really appreciate you uh, clarifying this and telling us about this and to how to look out for it. So I appreciate you being here today. You're very welcome. Have a good day. George Affleck in for Mike Smith this week and next week, and I uh, hope you're enjoying your day. Feel free to call our buzz line anytime throughout the show, 604 331 2899. 604 331 2899. You can email me, george at com as well with your thoughts and questions, and I'll try to take, you know, see if I can re- I'll respond to you always. The pandemic has meant that we all experience some element of loneliness, as you know. To take the edge off, we've used technology for virtual meetups, but for some older people, that might actually have left them feeling a little bit lonelier. Researchers from the University of British Columbia and Lancaster University in the UK found digital technology may not be a boon for older people. To talk about their findings, we are joined by one of the authors of the studies, Dr. Hu Yang, is the Senior Lecturer and Director of Global Development and de- at, the de- at the Department of Sociology, Lancaster University. Hello, Dr. Yang. Hi, George.
4: Thank you for having
1: me. Yeah. Tell me about the study. This is a quite, it's quite surprising.
4: Yes. Um, well, when the pandemic broke out, we were interested in understanding how some of the household-centered responses to the pandemic, particularly for the older people, mean for their mental well-being. So we looked at uh, two kinds of interactions, face-to-face and virtual contact. So we compared how the um, uh, impact on older people's mental well-being We found that older people having a high level of virtual contact were more likely to report feeling lonely during the pandemic, as well as having experienced an increase in the level of loneliness. And those who have had a higher level of uh, face-to-face contact uh, had experienced a higher level of uh, greater mental well-being during the pandemic.
1: Which, of course, they couldn't do for the most part, especially seniors, if they were in homes or things like that, or we were required not to have face-to-face. So this may have significant impact for the long term on a lot of seniors, wouldn't you think?
4: Indeed, indeed. So what we um, find in this research and what it means for our thinking about the future is really to think about how um, we can use digital technologies and enhance digital access and capacity for the aging population, for them to not to suffer from the use of technology, but benefit from it. So especially during the pandemic, quite a lot of older people suddenly have to make the transition mm-hmm. into the use of uh, virtual technology due to lockdown, household shielding and so on. The sudden transition can cause quite a lot of uh, stress, especially for people who are not used to the use of uh, technology. But but also, of course, uh, our results might also indicate that people who feel lonelier might be more likely to reach out to other people online. Uh, certainly either way, that's not good news because what we have found is that virtual interactions has not uh, constituted a, a, an adequate replacement for our face-to-face interactions.
1: Hmm. And that could be the case for any interactions. I mean, I think we all, a lot of people, no matter the age, had challenges, I think getting their head around using these technologies uh, on a regular basis, and certainly businesses had to make quick transformations. But it was surprising, some of your study talked about uh, how well they did adapt, seniors did adapt quickly to the new technology as a surprise to you.
4: Yeah, it was quite a surprise because uh, we were expecting that to some extent, the virtual interactions might compensate for uh, the lack of uh, face-to-face interactions, but that hasn't been the case Hmm. uh, according to our findings. So we find that uh, virtual only contact is associated with uh, the lowest level of uh, mental well-being and the heightened level of uh, loneliness during the pandemic. That's quite a surprise. Mm-hmm. But in addition to uh, adapting to uh, digital technology, there is also this issue of lengthened time people spend on the Internet and digital exposure. Um, we, we, um, almost all of us were not used to uh, spending so much time online mm-hmm. until the pandemic uh,
1: kicked in. Interesting. and and do you think that the actual technology, not only just the way you use it, but the actual because it's a screen and you're looking at it and physically, um, the way it's you know it's not three-dimensional, and does that have something to do with it?
4: Um Maybe in part. We yeah. haven't looked into that in our research. Uh, Since we have published this piece of research we have received correspondences from uh, readers across the world Mm -hmm. and people were Identifying with our results saying uh, some of the platforms and digital ones were not Necessarily designed to be age-friendly and it can be a quite a struggle and uh, Challenge for people who are not used to using those platforms to adapt to their usage so it's also about how we design our platforms as well as preparedness, because it's a sudden transition into the pandemic that really hit us very hard. So uh, for our next crisis, I'm thinking about maybe we need to uh, prepare all uh, age groups uh, better for uh, digital media use and communication.
1: And different, as you note, uh, a different approach for different generations. I mean, you think about... Simple things like button technology on a on a screen for somebody who's eighty versus somebody who's eighteen would be significantly different. So you really have to push the developers to build these things to for per age. I mean, that would be seem like one of the indications there.
4: Absolutely, and also across probably uh, different socioeconomic mm-hmm. groups, we know that there are considerable digital divides uh, in our society. And not everybody is afforded the same level of uh, technology, devices, and stable and quality access to the Internet. So uh, we, we really need to think about what kind of uh, equitable digital society we are building for the future.
1: What are some of the other reactions that you've received since the study was released, especially from from uh, older people?
4: Um, some of the responses are really heartwarming for us.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, they uh, feel that they have been heard, and we... Uh, voiced for them and they identify with our findings and Some of them even told us uh, uh, in your doing this research We feel uh, you are caring for us and they're asking for more of this kind of research to mm-hmm. be conducted and Some others also have told us uh, very uh, we're very grateful for the life stories from mm-hmm. their experiences Some of them uh, say uh, Some of them were almost compelled to use digital technology. Everybody tells them, look at WhatsApp and look (laughs) at Facebook, you'll be okay. And they become quite frustrated and fed up with being told to have to constantly check their Facebook pages, for example.
1: Yeah, the stress of that alone uh, creates a whole other uh, spectrum of problems, I think, for people uh, psychologically. What about younger people? Did you study, uh, does this data cross over into a younger generation that that for those who are the the same kind of impact, that it's a negative impact to be online and having these uh, virtual conversations? Uh,
4: We didn't look into the younger generation because uh, the comparative data between Uh, The UK and the United States were not available and Canada were not available Um, What we did for the older people was a comparative study between the USA and the UK Mm -hmm. and surprisingly and not surprisingly The findings are so similar Um, We don't have data for the younger people, but we need to think about the younger people as well We need to collect the data on that Mm -hmm. But one thing we need to bear in mind is that when we are looking at younger people although quite often we talk about them as digital natives but the kind of uh, inha- uh, lengthened period of time we are spending online during the pandemic mm-hmm. has been unprecedented. Yeah. We we also need to think about the kind of imp- in implication of the lengthened exposure of uh, having to stay in front of the screen. For example, uh, university students, yeah. they have to take their courses online, yeah. and young people uh, almost have to exclusively rely on digital technologies to connect with friends. Yeah. That can be uh, stressful and tiring, potentially, But uh, we look forward to uh, collecting more data and finding
1: out. Yeah, I look forward to that too. I have a 13-year-old and a a 20-year-old and 25-year-old, but certainly the 13 year old, who, you know, when you're a kid, uh, you want to hang out with your friends and and you couldn't do that for most of the year. And so you relied on, you know, virtual conversations and and I'll be curious to see that data. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me again. George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. Hope you're enjoying the day and the show. And we've gotten to our last hour here. If you want to call in our buzz line anytime throughout the show, 604-331-2899, And uh, we've got lots of stuff, lots of buzz lines that we're going to be running at the end of the show. So Surrey City Council meetings sometimes run past 2 a.m. in the morning. Our next guest is Linda Annis, a Surrey City Councilor. Who tried to put a stop to that, but her motion did not pass. Should council meetings be going that late? What does that mean for community members who want to speak at them, but also have a you know a day job? I'm joined now by the councillor. Hi, Linda. Good morning. So, is this because you're not a night owl, or uh, is there something because you don't like staying up late, or is there something else going on here? What happened?
5: Well. I actually am a night owl, okay. but I just don't think it's fair to the residents of Surrey. When council meetings run into the wee-wee small hours of the morning, they've got jobs to go to, and uh, after 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, none of us are at the best, and residents, of course, need to go and get some sleep so they can go and work in the morning.
1: Yeah, there's a. I mean, I, I was on Vancouver Council, as you know, for seven years, and we didn't have the same process, but the the the, the experience for the residents is such a crucial part of, democracy and and civic government to be engaged and have engaged people. So to ask them to stay till 2 a.m. seems very, very challenging. So tell me what happened when you introduced this motion, which seems completely logical that you shouldn't be asking people to do this. What happened?
5: Well, unfortunately, the mayor uh, responded very negatively to it and his councillors did as well. They didn't see the need for it. However, the good news was after it was defeated, the mayor did agree to talk to the city manager about seeing what we could do to be a little bit more reasonable about the hours that we're sitting in council. I'm hoping that we're going to start earlier so that people can come and listen and hear what's going on in the city. Right now, they do not have that opportunity.
1: It's really challenging. Does this late night uh, sittings happen often there?
5: It ha- happens more times than not. Uh, I think out- after I, probably the last four council meetings, it's happened three times. so it's becoming a regular occurrence. Surrey um, has always uh, had their council meetings starting in the early evening, but that was back when we were a small town and mm-hmm. things have evolved and you know there's a lot of business happening in Surrey, so it takes longer now and we need to adjust with the times.
1: When you bring a motion forward, you have to get you look for some support from, from the people. Did you get support? What were people saying about your motion when you put it out there?
5: Uh, from the public, I got tremendous amount of support. From the council, uh, unfortunately, it's become a real pattern at council. Uh, if it's uh, an idea from the, <laughs> not the majority, it doesn't get accepted. It doesn't f- matter if it's a good idea or not. It's a 5-4 split.
1: I feel your pain, Linda. I feel your pain. I was I was there for seven years in the same exact situation in Vancouver. But, you know, some would argue that... This is democracy. You have got you can't just shut it down. Uh, you've got to let the people speak. You know, they let it go until it's done while it's still fresh in their minds. I mean, is that not a good argument?
5: Well, absolutely. In the end of the day, the residents here to, deserve to know what's going on in their city. And we're not providing them with that opportunity. And I'll just go back to the council meeting that we had uh, this past Monday that went uh, well after uh, 2 a.m. in the morning. In the wee small hours of the morning, we decided about um, a road going through uh, Bear Creek Park, which mm-hmm. was very controversial. Mm-hmm. We talked about the South Campbell uh, change in land use from rural to um, to business and to commercial again another very con- controversial item these aren't things that we should be doing uh, in the wee wee small mm-hmm. hours of the morning when people aren't up and listening to what's going on and listening to the debate
1: do you think that's intentional that it's the opposite of democracy that it's intentionally meant to scare away people you got to get the sh- you, have, you know i if you have a big list by 2am those people oh, i can't be bothered i'm not going to stay i can't stay i got to go so therefore you limit democracy
5: it feels like legislation by exhaustion, and hmm. you know these types of uh, items that are quite controversial. And I'll just use both of them in both of them had more than seven thousand signatures opposed to these two uh, initiatives. And to have them late at night just makes no sense. People deserve to hear what the debate is and and find out what the final determination is. Not having to wait till morning and and hear it in the news—that's just not right.
1: I assume you pointed to other cities. I know that in Vancouver, the rule is if it goes past 10 p.m., you have to have unanimous support to extend, uh, and then you extend to a certain point, and then you have another. You have to actually get that support. And if you even one person says nope, can't do it, then you you schedule in the next meeting whenever you can. Are is Surrey alone on this 2 a.m. kind of approach, or are other cities like this?
5: I think Surrey is very unique because it's so busy here. We've got so much work coming before council because the city is growing at the rate of at least 1,000 people per month. Mm-hmm. So things are, are ever-evolving in, in the city of Surrey. So we need to be evolving as a council as well. And to your point, most of the other jurisdictions in the metro Vancouver area aren't sitting until uh, 2 a.m. in the morning.
1: And they have an approach similar to probably Vancouver, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. What happens next? So, you, so you've heard from the mayor that he's going to go look. So he, he kind of supports you, but he didn't want to do it publicly in an official vote because this is politics, I assume. So you're hoping that maybe there'll be a process. But, it, it, but the, the majority rules, if they decide to do whatever they want, they do whatever they want.
5: And politics shouldn't enter into uh, residents hearing what's going on at City Hall. That's just ridiculous. Um, there's some things that you know shouldn't be partisan, and one of them is is keeping the residents engaged in terms of what's happening at City Hall. We've had a lot of difficulties uh, with our transparency uh, mm-hmm. with the new government in under the, the mayor, and we need to change that.
1: With that uh, you 've got one year until the election and you 're running again, and what 's the plan for the next year? how are you going to take over the the city hall then
5: Well, I think we need to make a change at city hall we 've had a lot of very, very controversial issues uh, around the Surrey police transition, which is not a popular uh, Uh, Thing we've had more than forty-five thousand people sign a petition. You know, there's been questions, a lot of questions about the open and transparency at City Hall. Huge tax increases that mayor said that he was going to uh, keep taxes to two point nine percent. Well, I don't think anybody in Surrey this past year or the year before paid two point nine percent. Most of them had double-digit tax increases. Clearly, the residents of Surrey are not happy.
1: All right, Councillor, thanks for joining me today and good luck with uh, this campaign to not have so many late nights.
5: Thanks so much and thank you for having me on.